She wrote phone numbers on tiny scraps of paper and wrapped them tightly into small plastic packages, sewed them into the folds of her headscarf, the numbers of people who could help her children in case something happened. Oh yes, I've been to sea before. I spent 20 years at sea. As a coast guard, mostly. You'd rescue a sailor, a swimmer, one or two people at most. I'd never been involved in something quite like this before. Picking up boatloads of people. Hundreds at a time, sometimes. Taking them back to Italy, then turning around and doing the same thing days later. We must have been rescuing 500 people a week. She'd been travelling with her two children for many months. One man had shown them kindness, offered them water during the searing hot weeks in the desert. Small gestures that led her to believe he was a good man, one of the few who could be trusted. So she told him about the packages. We got used to seeing these boats, if you could call them that, dinghies, fishing boats, God, even rafts, packed with people, men, women, children, babies. The call could come at any time, day or night. We'd take turns to keep watch, scanning the horizon, listening to the radio. Days were filled with menial tasks, cleaning, cooking, preparing, running drills, discussing previous rescues what we could do better, what might come next, and always watching and waiting. Once we'd reached the rescue zone, we knew it wouldn't be long before we'd see a boat. When they finally reached the beach, they saw a huge expanse of water and waves glistening in the darkness. There were hundreds of people huddled together on the shore. And there was just one old fishing boat, pitifully small and fragile. They were forced on board with rough hands and shouts. More and more people, the weight of bodies pushing forward. She found herself wedged at the bottom of the boat, unable to move. She lost sight of the children and called for them in desperation, but her voice was lost in the chaos of the night. The first day was the worst, tossed by the rolling waves and gasping for breath in that hot, tight, airless space. As the hours passed, the smells became overwhelming. Vomit, sweat, human waste. She could hear children crying and she strained to recognize the voices. Part of her hoped that they'd never gotten onto the boat. It was worse at night. In the darkness we were never sure what we would find. The Coast Guard helicopter spotted the fishing boat. It was overloaded with people, hundreds of them hanging onto the sides, piled up on the roof. God knows how many parked below. The boat had run out of petrol. It was drifting. It could have been like that for days. 
Eventually, the pain and discomfort eased. She slept for longer periods now. She would wake up confused, thirsty, head throbbing, but would quickly drift off again, hovering in the space between dreams and sleep. As the stale air became heavier and heavier, she could feel herself slipping. Her thoughts came back yet again to her children, and she touched the headscarf. She rubbed her fingers across the bumps in the soft fabric and felt comforted. She would try to hang on. For them. Once the refugees and the migrants were on board, our job started. We looked after the injured. Anything from broken legs and burns to hyperthermia. We've seen a lot. Pregnant women, newborn babies. They were hungry, tired, scared. We greeted them all. Tried to make them feel safe. We're just another stop on a very, very long journey. Some of them have been traveling for months, years. They came from far and wide. Syria, Somalia, Eritrea, Nigeria. They're barbers, students, dentists, waiters. Back and forth the dinghy went, from the rescue ship to the small, overcrowded fishing boat, each time bringing back another fearful load. The children were brought on board first, soaking wet in their torn t-shirts and worn-out sandals. Many of them were traveling on their own, or had become separated from their family along the way. After the children, the women, then the men. They carried prayer beads or wooden crosses, small treasured items, flattened cigarettes, soap, razor blades. They produced worn wallets wrapped in plastic, spilling out family photos and European phone numbers. This time when the rib came back with the final load of people, I knew something was wrong. The crew stayed in the boat. Only the captain came on board. He leant into me and whispered, we're going to need body bags. Once everyone was settled on board, Sam, the translator, started making the rounds, asking questions in a gentle voice. Where are you from? Do you have any injuries? Are you alone? Who are you with? Two children held themselves apart from the others, brother and sister. Sam approached them. The rib went back one final time and we prepared the morgue. We'd been at sea three months by then and each rescue had been more difficult than the last. It would take five hours in pitch darkness to get all the refugees on board. We had to transfer a heavily pregnant woman to hospital by helicopter. We had to move 300 people below deck when a storm threatened to wash everyone overboard. We dealt with broken limbs, asthma attacks. I thought I'd seen it all. But nothing compared to the feeling of carrying a body bag onto our ship. Sam asked them if they were traveling with anyone. 
they whispered one word. Mother. Sam stroked their heads, smiled at them, and told them he'd find her. She was a woman in her mid-thirties, with a flowery head scarf wrapped around her head. She'd been crushed at the bottom of the boat. She'd probably drowned in the water that collected her. Sam asked them when they had last seen her. Did she come on board? They shook their heads and pointed to the fishing boat, drifting empty in the darkness. He asked them if there was anyone else with them, anyone that they knew on board. They pointed to the man who'd traveled with them, the one they'd seen talking to their mother. How'd you tell a nine-year-old and a four-year-old that their mother is dead? God knows what they've already suffered. I thought of my own children. He told them that the children's father was already in Europe, and he told them about the phone numbers, written on tiny scraps of paper, wrapped in plastic, and sewn into the folds of her scarf. Phone numbers of people who could help the children, in case something happened. We conducted a funeral for her there on the boat, so that the children could say goodbye. We wrapped her in sheets and said a few words. We told the children we would find their father, that we would look after them until they were reunited. We could promise them that. Anywhere But Home is a six-episode audio drama brought to you by Save the Children. To meet the people who inspired this story and find out more about the issues featured in this episode, go to www.savethechildren.net forward slash anywhere but home. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work of Save the Children, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Anywhere But Home was written and created by Alexia Singh. Directed by Alexia Singh. Produced by Natasha Coleman. Sound design, editing, and music by Nikki French. Casting by Merrill and Leslie. Recorded and edited by Nathan at the Blue Studios. Jacob was performed by Michael Smiley, and the narrator was played by Juliana Yazbek.